0: You never do know what it is that the Lord's going to allow and for what reasons, but you've got to fall back on him. You can't say, why me, Lord? You have to say, what now, Lord?
1: Welcome to the premiere edition of the Christian Music Archive podcast. I'm your host, Dave Maurer. And if you have followed Christian music for any time, you will probably recognize the name Bob Farrell. Bob is one half of the husband and wife duo Farrell and Farrell, who for 20 years in the 70s and 80s helped define the way Christian music sounded but astute credit readers will probably recognize Bob's name as a songwriter. He's penned songs for a huge list of artists, everybody from Sandy Patty and DeGarmo and Key to Wynonna and Eric Clapton. He's also written oratorios that have been sung in churches around the world, as well as collaborated with Eddie DeGarmo to write the popular I Hero rock opera from 2003. But for me, this was a fun interview because the very, very first record I ever owned was Farrell and Farrell's album, Let the Whole World Know. So it was fun for me to sit down with Bob and chat a little bit about his music, about his career, and how his relationship with Jesus has shaped the whole thing. So let's jump into our conversation. Well, Bob, I'd like to thank you for uh, for joining me and for being willing to take some time out of your busy schedule. I know you've got that big Go project that you're working on construction.
0: Uh, uh, right now I'm being construction, Bob. Yeah, you know, and that's that's not normal. But I did, I have done it before. But I'm in the middle of, of renovating a basement into a, a rental space for kind of a vacation rental. So.
1: Where did your where did your interest in music start and how did you get started making music and
0: writing songs? I had cover bands from the time I was I was in junior high in Dallas, Texas. That was all fun because that was all car songs and beach songs in the in the '60s, right? Right. And um, so mid '60s, and then here came the Beatles in '62 or four or, or whatever it was on on Ed Sullivan and blew everybody's gourd. And it really, literally shifted the the paradigm for me because I'd always been I played trumpet and stage band and concert band in junior high, and uh, but I'd never played guitar. But w- once I started with this little cover band in Dallas, you know, and playing house concert for people's birthday parties and stuff, I knew that I loved it, and so it was a natural progression. And then the, the guitar player, as much as I bugged him, he started showing me some chords. So <laughs> everything I did was pretty much self-taught. But what really aided me along with Paul McCartney, because, I, you know, I just started aping every bass line. I had a little six string uh, classic, you know, Greco classic guitar gut string. Okay, And I taught myself enough to go find some bass lines that McCartney had written. So I was copying Polly and, and then along the way, uh, the British Invasion, it switched our repertoire in our little band that was in Dallas called Sticks. And then I moved back to my hometown of Lubbock, Texas, when I was a junior, and I kind of brought with me my love for all that music thing. I met Jane. My wife of fifty plus years now. Yeah. In high school, in senior year, in Lubbock, Texas, and we we had been kind of uh, ships passing in the night because we had both been moved in and out of Lubbock. I Moved out when she moved back, and she moved back when I, you know, all that. Yeah. Spring semester, senior year at Love. I was my band was doing the senior assembly, so we, I was, I was on deck to do three songs. When when Jane showed back up in town, everybody said, "Oh, well, she's got to sing. She's got to be in the assembly because she's, you know, she'd been there before and sung in the sophomore assembly." I said, "Well, I don't know who this person is, you know, and so I, I don't back up chick singers, you know. But I have a, you know, I had a band that didn't have a name too. So that's how long, you know, my band could boast that we don't back up chick singers, but we didn't have a name. So there was that. So anyway, when I and, and, until I met her, and then I met her, and it was like, what song are we gonna do with you, you know? <laughs> so we started singing." that next fall in my, my band, D- Jane gave us a name. She named the band DOA. And DOA played fraternity dances in Lubbock at Texas Tech University and sorority functions and high school proms and all that. And I did that for a couple of years in while I was going to college and I was making really good bank. And, but I was just doing Steppenwolf and Roll from Beatles and, and you know all that. Cover band kind of world. And, uh, but it was real popular in West Texas. We were, uh, you know, a well known band for a while there. Yeah. But I always dreamed kind of of doing more with it. So fast forward to 1969, Jane and I get married and we moved to, to Houston. And I I, I I actually got out of music there for a bit because, uh, you know, I just thought, married man. And I was ready to do something else with the music besides what I had done. And I moved to Houston and went to night school and got a full-time job during the day. And, and it, um, it just so happened that two years into the marriage, we were about ready to call it quits oh. and it was going badly. And Jane got born again. We had just been pulling apart. We right. had been separating, you know, over a, a period, a couple of years and he gotten to a break point and, she went to this crusade service in downtown Houston at a church and first Baptist church, in fact, and came home that Sunday and said, Bobby, I'm going to live for Jesus. Oh, wow. And I said, Jane, I'm going to live in Dallas. And that was your response. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) So I, I left and went to Dallas with my buddy. In fact, he was a drummer from my old band in Dallas and he had just gotten home from Vietnam. And so he was going through those withdrawals Yeah, and it was a weird time, but I stayed in Dallas for about three months of that spring of 71 and Jane was a new Christian and I wasn't communicating with her. You know, we were in Houston and Dallas and we were 300 miles apart. And, and I just felt like I needed to go home and try to make the marriage work. So I got home in uh, late February, just with a week later, I was probably about ready to, to jet again. I was just, I was as miserable as I could be. Now, life was kind of coming undone. And this guy comes to my house. And I found out later Jane had cooked it all up. <laughs> but he's a guitar player and a musician. In fact, he was one of the early Christian bands, the first band that, that they signed to Murr Records a couple of years later called Dove. Oh, yeah. And the Pat Terry group guys, Randy Bugg and Sonny were in the band. Yeah. At that time, they were in Dove. And Bill came to my house and he he came toting his, his album under his arm and his guitar in his other <laughs> arm. And you know what? It just, it that had my attention to begin with. And then I liked him, mm-hmm. but then he got serious about his mission and which was me. And so he starts kind of drilling in about the Lord, you know, and I, and I finally just kind of, came to a, a over boiling point about it and just thought, I got to just let these people know I, I'm not a candidate for this. Mm. My wife may want to play church, but I don't, I'm not interested. Yeah. So I started pushing back. And when I pushed back, he didn't argue with me. He just kind of said, well, that's a, I guess that's a legit question. Cause I wouldn't want to talk about Bible contradictions or Christianity should, you know, religion should be p- personal. And you're yeah. this is not personal the way you're doing it and all that. But eventually, he just basically said, you know, I don't have the answer to that, Bible. but I think I know the Lord will, and, you know, if you keep asking him, and but the important thing is that he died for you. Uh. He came to earth, and if you'd have been the only person in town that needed him, he would have died for you. And you know what? It just began to make sense to me. And so the subterfuge, the smokescreen that I'd been creating and talking to him, it just kind of, uh, it all fell apart. So was this all in one night, or was this over a period of time? one after, that was all in one afternoon. Wow. He showed up the house about about one o'clock or so. and I'd say by maybe three o'clock or so, I was really warming up to the gospel, and so I finally just told him I'm game you know i'll I'll try this. I want to try this and it it literally changed my life. So I prayed a prayer with him that did i mean he he had tears and I didn't. You know, Um, it was kind of (laughs) of matter of fact for me, but for him, it was kind of, oh, that's this is cool. Lord is doing something here, and I'm gonna tell you something. A week later, so Jane rejoiced, her friends rejoiced, everybody was happy for Bob, and then a week later, I'm going to Dallas with my brother, who's a big brother, six years older, and I want to tell John what happened to me, and I can't find, I get stuck in my throat, I can't get the words out of my mouth. And so later that day, I run into my old buddy, my Vietnam buddy, and we start drinking a little, and then we start smoking a little. And the next thing I know, I'm just completely reprobate Bob. And uh, I get home the next day, and Jane, of course, she she knows something's up. And so I spilled the beans. I said, you know, I just really, I screwed up big time. And a friend of hers who knew about this much more Bible than I did, she got in front of me and and told me the story of, of the king who, who you know used the things of the Lord's table, and then the Lord took him that night. You right, know? right. The hand on the finger, the handwriting on the wall, guy, That king. Yeah. And, and when she snapped her finger in my face and said, "God took him just like that," you know, and I'm like, oh, I don't want to be taken like that. So I, I had a real, true, come back to the Lord experience. Just a weekend to, you know, to my salvation. Wow. And. That night, that afternoon, I went down to St. Thomas University. was about a block down from us. And there was a Martin Luther King obelisk uh, memorial in a little plaza. It was real peaceful. It was real, you know, the solitude level was high. And, And I went down there and I wrote my first song ever. Oh, really? My first song ever. And it was about that very experience. And it was called Restored. And the, the Pat Terry group recorded it, several people recorded it later, but it was just a real outpouring of in, from an experience. So it set up a pattern of, of something that happened to, has happened all my life. My whole writing career has been a personal experience filtered through the word of God and with my own language. And sometimes I include scripture in my songwriting because it makes it so much stronger and it lasts so much longer. Because the word is eternal. So if I, if I can borrow the words of Paul and, and James and Jesus and John and all, it's that much stronger and it stays around that much longer because it, it's, it's got the word of God in it.
1: So you and Jane had done some cover band stuff around town. How does Farrell and Farrell as a band officially get started?
0: We started singing at home. just And, and we actually learned a song from Jesus Christ Superstar because I liked that rock opera. And we learned a Bill Gaither song called He Touched Me that I didn't even know who Bill Gaither was, but I knew about that song. I rewrote some commercials like the Dr. Pepper jingle and used them as, My sweet Jesus, so misunderstood. If anyone would try him, they'd know you're so good. You know, I would take jingles and do them. Yeah. So we didn't have much repertoire, but we were just goofing around at home. That big crusade effort that had gone on for Jane when she got born again in January of 71, was at a big downtown church and they, they started doing follow-up Bible studies because so many, it was during the Jesus movement of the, of the 70s, and so many people were born again in Houston through that crusade, me and Jane included. They started having follow-up Bible studies for the, all those kids, those new believers. And they were junior high and high school and college. I mean, they were just kind of all over the place there. H wise but they would have these things in backyards. And I got a call from somebody that said, "You know, I got your name from Bill Landers and Bill's the guy that led me to the Lord that was in the group and Dove." And I said, "Really? Yeah, I, you know, I met him during the Crusade that was here at the church. And I called him, and he told me I should call you because you you guys could come sing at our thing." And I went, "Huh?" <laughs> <laughs> What are you talking about? <laughs> Who's going to come sing it? I, said, I don't know. I mean, Bill said y'all would be able to pull it off, and I went. Bill's so full of it. I, we we put together, a, a cobbled together two or three songs, maybe a sing along. You know, yeah. I can life out of me. Those kind of songs. yeah, yeah. And pulled together enough that we got over to that thing and did we did i don't know how to love him from Jesus Christ Superstar and we sang our little set for about 15 minutes and then we sat down okay the next week the phone started ringing and it didn't quit ringing for years wow that's the fairfield fair story wow literally and so i mean the word got out and there weren't there weren't there wasn't very much of that contemporary kind of stuff yeah there was a guy in nashville that you know was ended up signing this and, and uh, was that Paragon? It, it was Bob McKenzie at New Packs Records oh, New Pax, right. and he was at the time he was Bill Gaither's manager and I think Bob was looking for a contemporary Bill and Gloria. Okay. We really weren't but I think he thought we were. <laughs> Your are a husband and wife so obviously. <laughs> yeah yeah kind of that vibe but he, I, you know but I learned a lot from, from Mac and I loved him and uh, sometimes I wanted to beat him to death but Overall, he, he helped us and and he did get us in front of people in a different way because he got us on the radio because mm. the first single was off of off of the Feral and Feral record was Earthmaker and it went to number one yeah so our first single was the number one song on Christian radio wow so that felt good yeah and you know we would get to travel further and sometimes it was dry because didn't people didn't know who we were but that too evolved in the second album. I By then, I had met Brown. I I approached Brown Bannister. Okay. I said, I love your work on Amy Grant. I would you like to produce my next record? He said, yeah. So (laughs) we wrote three or four songs. We wrote I Couldn't Live Without You. We wrote All You Need.
1: Love that song.
0: We wrote Fallen. And Jane found the song uh, Balanced Love and we recorded it but she found it at our publisher downtown on the row and, uh, and brought it to the studio and said we're doing this song and we Brian and I looked at each other and after she played it for us and we went yeah we're doing this song nice. and it was an extra song I think it was the song 11 yeah on the album but it was an obvious you got to cut this song. oh it Down was, yeah 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 that too began to burgeon but when we got to, when the all you need thing happened we the, the label wasn't ready for the fact that the that all you need popped out of the of the bag by itself and it, and it landed on pop radio mm. and i'm talking about real pop right. radio dallas and houston and all these cities and they didn't know what to do with it they didn't know how they couldn't manage it they couldn't contain it they couldn't and so it had its you know i remember one time jane and i were while it was it was big on christian radio we went into a mall one day in oklahoma city where we were living and. We heard it on the speakers in the mall. Oh, that's and gonna was, be wild! Was, we stopped and went. Why is that playing? How could that be? <laughs> but our neighbor was a guy named Ken Dull, and he was a program director, uh, one of the big pop stations in Houston or in Dallas. And uh, but everybody else followed Ken's leaning, so they would look at what he was playing, and they would mimic it. Okay, mock what he was doing, and um. And he was a neighbor. He lived down the block from us. And he was a new believer. Oh, cool. And he loved us. And he loved our music. He just thought we were the coolest thing ever. So, Ken, Ken Dahl was the one that was responsible for getting it played in Dallas and Houston on his stations that he programmed. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, it just went, wow. It just took off. So, it, it was really a fun ride. All you need was a big, big song. And it did, you know, so... Anyway, we and the last the next record was "Make Me Ready," which was uh, was a lot of fun to do. Yeah. I did it with Brown, and we went out to LA and did the tracks, and and it was a totally different. And Mike Demas and I started writing together right. for the record because Michael was on the road. With him and Nancy were on the road. His wife played bass. Yeah, and they had come on with us before. We rest. We really went to a full band, so we had just Mike and Nancy on bass and guitar and and guitars and keyboards he played keyboards too and me on on acoustic and then we would kind of used some tracks to fill up you know right some of the fill up the sound that's the band thing but then when it came around a, a little bit later and we got ready to do a live record he brought in some buddies from amarillo texas and they became the new Farrell and Farrell band that's the
1: album that i cut my eye teeth on for you guys i actually won it on a radio station and let the whole I, world know? The, let the whole world know live. Yep. And I played that on my record. Dude, I can't even
0: tell you what a blast that was to do. We had a hoot. I mean, it was 3,500 people in Civic Center in Oklahoma City. We had four, three or four number one tunes, Let the Whole World Know. Yeah. Um, After all those years, remember that ballad? Yep. yep. Tim Pepper wrote that for us. He actually wrote it to his new bride, but we were at Northbury Farm. Uh, right before we did that record and he played it he he, he he's here's play our said and he approached me i didn't even know him and he came up and played he said i'm getting married and i just wrote this for my bride and he played me after all those years and i said can i have it he said yeah i want you to have it (laughs) (laughs) so i knew i knew i had to cut that and we did jane redid homesick soldier and that was number one so there were three number one songs off of a live record that was unheard of (laughs) that un. That didn't really happen yeah. ever. Yeah. But it was, you know, it it was uh, it was fun to do. It was the first time I wrote, not the first time I met him, but the first time I worked with Eddie Garma Okay. Yep. And he produced the album, and uh, shortly after that, we started writing together. Yeah. And so that was a good collaboration because I started writing. I wrote a couple of hits for, for uh, "Let the Whole World Sing." Yep. Uh, and what else did I write? was the Garmo key that they recorded, but he and I started writing and then he, and then he did Troy's album and jumped to conclusion records. Mm-hmm. So he and I created techno. Well, I
1: was going to go there because you guys were really the first people that I knew of anyway, to start
0: doing yeah. this techno music. We were that was arguably the first tech in Christian, Christian music. And, and I was, by then the the live record had been out for a couple let the whole world know it'd been out for a couple of years and I changed record labels and I signed with Star Song yep. because Eddie and I wanted to see we just thought they were they would get it. uh uh-huh. We had an by then he and I had a, a, a had formed an idea of what what we thought would work for Farrell and Farrell. And it was because we both liked that tech stuff. We liked the Hollow Notes, we yep. liked in you know, Easton, we liked, you know, uh, Thomas Dolby, and all that stuff yeah. we listened to. And I thought, you know, I want to do something different. I mean, I, we're kind of middle-of-the-road pop. Yeah. We're a married couple. So, you know, some people don't check us out just because they think that's corny. And <laughs> I want to do something off the wall. So we, we, we started looking into exactly, in, in other words, I started writing the songs and tooling the songs and threw out a lot of songs that almost made the mark but didn't. We moved over to Memphis and recorded where Eddie and Dana yep. recorded at Arden. We worked with those guys, those players of Memphis players. So it was a whole different thing from the Nashville thing. Different sound doing.
1: altogether, yeah,
0: totally other. And it was fun, man. We had a, but you know, we had a moratorium on the on grand piano for the whole record, mm. the Choices album. Yeah, I think it was one song. Mm. He is there that has a had a, a piano otherwise it was all electronic yeah even the drums were Simmons drums you know it's yeah like white noise and pink noise or whatever <laughs> it's like you're playing the kitchen table you know Simmons <laughs> drums but here's one of the best drummers in the world trad Cromwell and he's played with everybody now yeah you know yeah here's Trad back there and you know what he was so hungry and young and needing a gig and and he came on the road with me for mm. a couple of years. So we did a lot of work together. Yeah. Chad we're still good buddies, but he was out with uh, Tom Petty on his last tour, you know, playing for Joe Walsh, yeah, so Chad was in the mix and we got we got a lot of good Memphis talent in that John Hampton was the guy engineering and mixing, yep, he was and he's no longer with us, right. you know John was a sweetheart, but his ideas, man, were just so stellar, and his mixes were so stellar but he created stuff on mixes like people in a box, you yeah. know, that had people <laughs> in he, he, those came out of John's head. Uh-huh. So a lot of the times it, it wasn't something Eddie and I, we just get to the studio and hear the mix and we go, that's cool. <laughs> you know? So American man, the cheerleaders in the courts of American uh-huh. man, all that stuff came out of John. So we turned a, cor- a hard left corner. You sure did. Yeah. Yeah. But it paid off because it was the biggest record outside of jump that we ever did. And and it had plenty of radio play. And and we changed we brought a genre, a new genre to yeah. music. Yeah. I mean, we literally introduced tech. Yeah. And and um that was fun to do. And so we were the first guys too to go out and have computers on stage. You know? Yeah. And people thought we were nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Nuts they come and there would be an Apple IIe in, you know. So was program. this was this a choice that you made, pardon the pun, the choices, the album, yeah. but was
1: this a choice that you made to reach a different audience or was it just kind of a different place in your heart at that time? You were just looking at a different music. Uh, I
0: think it was, it was both of those things, honestly, Dave. I, I wanted to I wanted to reach uh, a different audience if I could, you know, by doing that. But I was also a little bit bored with what I was doing. I felt like I had had, had ridden that pony as hard as i could and i need i needed something new and fresh to happen in our music for us for our sake yeah and and we both were you know, electrified by doing it i mean it was fun to do and so and you know i like plowing i've always loved plowing new ground and, and in christian music not having any tech it, it was a good time to you know to come flying out there so, yeah yeah it, it was it was very workable the one thing you realize, though, is once you start doing that, uh, is that uh, it's hard to get off a boat that you set it in motion. So after I was kind of, mm, I'm not sure I want to keep doing tech, the the labels, you know, wouldn't hear of it. So, yeah. <laughs> and and eventually when I got to the Superpower album, it was because we had, in 1988, Jada and I went to Russia and did, it was still communist Russia. Right, I and, remember and that. 33 three shows in uh, Moscow and Leningrad and we went with a group called, uh, in fact Tom Newman is he's the guy, the spokesperson now on TVN. Oh, okay. Yeah, Tom Newman and Tom had a group called uh, Toymaker's Dream. It was a dramatic presentation. I remember that, yeah. And, and Mike Demas, uh, my guitar player and, and co-writer, uh, he wrote all that music for Toymaker's Dream and it was a pantomime you know sort of drama and dancing and pantomime and stuff and it was all narration and but we got the invite because tom got the invite to come to russia and he called me and said you guys want to go and i said well, yeah. yeah and so we got a chance to go and joe english went with and mm-hmm. played drums so that was my a chance to work with joe cool super stellar yeah and we did uh, Starship and Mr. Mister, and you know, and all these different pop bands. We did some D&K, we did some Pharaoh and Pharaoh, but we only did 45 or 50 minutes of music, and that was all we knew. Yeah. Because it really wasn't, it was part of my band, Mike and Nancy and Dave Robinson was along, and all the, and then we also had a couple of English was along, and, and uh, a keyboard player from Tulsa was along. So we knew what we knew, and that's all we knew. So if they wanted more than one encore, they didn't get it. But (laughs) we actually did back in the USSR with a rock star in Russia. And that was fun because he was a rock star, and everybody knew him. And he was Sasha Losef. So he and I sang back in the USSR every night. And we were playing to, holly, in Leningrad, and we were in that ice hockey arena that held 100,000 people, and they had pie-shaped off. You know, a, a concert area for for our shows. Yeah, just a segment of that ice hockey arena, and, and even with that, we were playing to twenty five thousand wow. people every show. It wow. was packed. Wow. So it was really, really an anointed time. We knew we were doing something powerful in a in a godless environment, yeah. country, and it needed saying. And in we, we learned really early on I told everybody because they were afraid of, to speak about the Bible and Jesus and the gospel and stuff and and I but I realized the promoters that had brought us they weren't paying us because you couldn't take hard currency out of the country oh, right. so they were getting ruble rich and, and they weren't paying us any of us anything oh wow right we were just there to be doing it yeah and, and so I thought so they're going to toss us out for saying Jesus I don't think so <laughs> I think we should just say what we want to say. Yeah. So Tom started getting brave at the end and giving, not an altar call, but an invitation for people to pray with him. So we, we it was an amazing move of God. And, yeah. you know, just a year, less than a year later, the wall came down. Yeah. So, I mean, we were there on the cusp of when they were just about to break loose. and That's incredible. After that tour, and we came home and people you try to tell people how excited you were about it in america and they would yawn yeah you just realized i don't know it it felt like to jane and i that we that what we were doing had run a circuit and we needed to do we needed a, a big life change so not long after that after the superpower album which we were working on when we went to russia okay in fact we left the studio to, to get on the plane and got home and started and finished the album put it out and started touring it and you know it just it all felt like yeah, <laughs> it felt like we were just doing christian entertainment uh, you know and it didn't feel like cutting edge anything and i think jane and i were just ready for it. we were we were primed for a change and yeah. so I, we got off the road in 91 or so and um and I just started writing in for everybody else. If, you know, for the first time in my career, really, I was able to let every song go. Yeah. Because I wasn't sitting on songs for Farrell and Farrell, because I wrote all of the material for Farrell and Farrell with myself or with those, Demas or yeah. Garmo or somebody. It felt good to just be letting songs go and to be writing particular stuff. And I got on a tear, man. I wrote Hero. I wrote Le Voyage. I wrote Savior all in in a four or five year period in the mid 90s and then i went on the I'm back on the road with the and we toured hero we and that was a big success and um uh, and a lot of fun I, I mean hero tour is one of the most fun things i ever did in my whole life oh, wow. and if people have never seen it they, they should go on youtube and look at yeah you know, the rock opera and watch all of it it's all on there and we're something's probably going to happen with hero again because uh, there's some people really pumped about this screen, so you know, at the point at which we did the rock opera, there was no streaming video on Netflix, right. and now they're hungry for content, yeah, it's, and they need good content. Right. So, I have a feeling that Hero, the movie, will get made, and uh, and we'll still be involved in it. So, you know, life goes on, but, I, you know, I'm not much of a, I don't believe much. I think uh, retirement is overrated. <laughs> and so I think as long as you're here, you're supposed to be doing something and just stay active as you, as you can.
1: You had two stories in your book, but the thing that caught me on it was you went through two really, really dark times, at least that you yeah. talked about in your book, um, the, the bankruptcy and the depression that yeah. came after that, and then also the flood in 2010. And those were both really tough times for you. And you talk in the book about how important it is to have a circle of friends around you uh, for not only the bad times but the good times, um, talk a little bit more about what that what that means when
0: you say that. There's a reason people love buddy movies like Frodo and Sam. You know, uh-huh. I, there's a reason for that because life's not we're not meant to go down that road alone. And obviously, if we go down that road with Jesus, we're not alone. We may be up by ourselves, but we're not alone. Right. That road is meant to be to be shared and that's what the book is about because people get uh, you know get stuck on their road of life and so i thought well i've been stuck and i got out of it and i want to tell people how i got out of it and why it got so crappy out there on the road and, and what i did that was you know that was that got me screwed up and, and off on in the ditch and uh-huh. how i got back on the road and how i've continued going forward because it's about forward motion but if one of the things after the bankruptcy, which I brought on myself, and I talk about it in the book. You go find it on. I will be. You can go find it on Amazon. Is that you? Uh, it's so damaging, and it's like seared nerve endings or something. You know, you start losing all your sensibilities. You know, and and you forget that. Friends are there for, for not just, as you said, not just for those good times and ha- having a laugh and having a lunch and a coffee, but the bad times when you don't feel like talking to them and you want to say, kiss off. And, yeah. and what you really need is for them to make you accountable, to keep you accountable. What you really need is for them to, to get in your face, you know, and yeah. <laughs> help you take down the black, black crepe that you've hung all over your, your life <laughs> and your house and your car and your – and and get back to uh, honesty and accountability. And so I found out that after I had allowed myself to get in such a funk after the bankruptcy, and I, and I, and i talk about how that happens. I mean, cause you just kind of beat yourself up for doing some stupid things that you, you know, you caught, you bring on yourself. Yeah. I mean, I didn't have to get myself in the predicament I did, but I, I did. And it cost me big time, but, god intended for me to get up and go on and move on and i had to learn that and so but when i did i realized that i had not only cut my wife out of certain areas of my life but i'd also cut off my friends that that were there and and never had gone anywhere but then, but i just quit checking in and, and i, I kind of made it uh, compulsory that they stay away from me you know because mm. it was toxic so that it that wasn't healthy and and I think it's a really, really strong, important thing for for you to pick good friends, and I will talk about that in the book because yep. a lot of people pick crap friends. Yeah, and they let and and they're, they they pick people that drag them down. And if, and I'm telling you, if you're in a friendship and a relationship that we're, you know, you're having to change this and change that, and it's dragging you downward and backward, get out of it. I mean, just jettison away. Yeah. It's not like let me let me see if I can, you know, slope down on this thing. No, just cut it off. And I mean cut it off. Yeah. Because it's it's unhealthy and, and unhealthy relationships are really damaging.
1: So th- so your friends that were around you during these dark times, they weren't people that you said, Okay, I'm just having a really lousy day. I need to go find a friend to, to pick me up. You had you had fostered those relationships before so that when you were down they were there. It's not something you had to create when you were down, right?
0: Right. I did have good friends and I wasn't but I, I was kind of doing I was kind of sulking. I had a sulk corner and it was it was easy for me to retreat into my you know, into my own little cocoon. In fact the title of the book that you've got, I will be, is a song that that talks about that very thing of the damage that you do when you crawl inside yourself. And that's why I picked that song to expand the lyric and talk about these ideas that are, that are in the book Yeah, because they're helpful because they put a positive spin because Jesus has a bigger plan. You know, it's not that he doesn't, he's not there when you, when you screw up and you fall down and you flatten your face into the ground and you eat dirt and he's, he's there to get you up Yeah, over and again, but he's going to move you forward and he's going to teach you some stuff that might, some of it might be painful. But friends, good ones are the are the ones that will that are, are not afraid to tell you that, you know, and you're not afraid to say, yeah, you're right, you're right, and I'm, I'm you know, I'm thinking wrong, I'm thinking wrong headed here. So to me, the flip side of that is that you need to be
1: a friend to others and to be able to be Absolutely. available to pour into them.
0: And I think one of the things that's scary about the internet is that it's. It's not a good substitute for that. Right, It's not. I mean, you can text your tail off, and that doesn't mean jack diddly, honest, because it, it will not replace having coffee or having lunch or whatever with your bud that you need to do on a regular basis. And you need you need to make the effort to keep those relationships flowing and good. And, and uh, you know, on occasion, there'll be something collaborative going on. It might be some man like DeGarmo and I just you know, a phone call, but it might be, you know, go, going down to his lake place, you know, and, and going skiing out there or something. I mean, it's just good to oil those those relationships because they'll stay good and they'll stay effervescent and, and they'll stay fresh and they'll refresh your life right. because of that. It, so it's, it's a way to uh, shame the devil. It really is. And people don't realize that it that it, it is important. Is anything in life is to have a little buddy system. You have to be huge. You don't need 5,000 friends on Facebook. You just need, you know, five or six or eight, ten people that you go, man, I can call this guy when I'm just feeling crud. And what I heard you say is
1: that you, you talked about the greasing the wheels piece. This is uh, pre-praying for those times. It's not just assuming they'll be there when it's done.
0: Yeah, and I, but I think it's the, the incredible thing about how that works is that today you're down and they're up and tomorrow they're going to be down and you're going to be up or you're both going to be down. And you're going to have to look at each other and say, this is, <laughs> this is bad. <laughs> Let's don't do this. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's all the dynamics that relationships are supposed to be, but I just think friends are, are super important and you shouldn't shut them out just because you're having bad times. You, you need to let, because I found out how helpful they were, especially when I came back to, you know, letting down my guard a little bit and saying, "Yeah, I need help. I'm not in a good place. I'm in a bad place." Yeah. And so that'll help you come out
1: of. So talk a little bit about how these friends came alongside of you in 2010 when you experienced a slight rainstorm.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think at first they knew they knew the repercussion because I mean, bankruptcy—the B word—is is devastating. And it does all kinds of things to your psyche, your ego, your self confidence, your self esteem. All that stuff gets battered, and so you have a natural, you know. And if you're unless you battle it, you'll just find yourself, you know, uh, in a prenatal position sucking your thumb on the couch,
1: <laughs> yeah. And
0: you'll feel fine about that, yeah. You'll feel this is exactly where I ought to be, but it's not, and it's that in itself is damaging. But it's easy when that's, you know, you just don't take the phone calls. You just don't go make the, the lunch that you no, normally go to with whoever it is. You just find ways to keep your guard up and fend off stuff like Wonder Woman knocking yeah. bullets, you know, bam, bam, bam. I, I, you know, that didn't mean that everybody gave up, but eventually they, some of those people will give up. They'll just think, well, huh, I don't know what Pharaoh's going through, but yeah. that's weird. So I, I had to kind of, let them in and let them know that I was letting them in mm. and let them know that I had I had kind of you know tripped off the, the, the path there and, and indulged myself because I felt like it was self-indulgent mm. ever really did ever got past it that I had I had created some of my own miasma mm. around myself because I had been so in, self-indulgent about it Yeah, because you want to kick yourself you want to kick your own tail when you do that and and you jeopardize you know your relationship with your wife and your family because you let them down and, you know it's their life too and and, and when you take the rug out from under people uh, financially i mean it's it's a record ball it's an absolute record ball yeah it's going to crash through all the walls and uh and it's going to keep crashing and reverberating so we came out of that we got healthy again and then i start my career started catching on again and and in fact, I will be was a big song for Winona, and uh, it was a big ad on not mm-hmm. on television ad for a couple of years. So that that was a winner, and then all started coming, and then here came the Hero Tour. So I came back from all that, and I'm and I moved into that flood house in 2008, and that was after, uh, after we had spent a year, ten years in a condo, eight years in a condo after the bankruptcy, just rebuilding. We didn't own anything. <laughs> we had to, we had to sell the house, the dream house on the hill in Nashville, and, and uh, to keep from losing it because things were bad. And I talk about why, how it happened. You know, yeah. it, it, it was just a bad decision. It was something I shouldn't have trusted the guy, and I did, and it blew up in my face. But even so, I came back from that, and and I had successful runs of this and that. And I went back out on the road with DeGarmo, you know touring hero and it was great it was absolutely great right. and fun and it was subsequent to that that i we we found a house and thought this would be good let's let's this is an older house and we'll fix it up and so we bought it and then we got it like we wanted it and here came a the thousand year flood of 2010 and we you know we had six feet of water in our house and you lost everything I, everything i lost my grand piano i lost Uh, tons of of memorabilia i lost pictures we lost some of the furniture came through but what we had to do to it i mean some of us in our house now you know but but for the most part yeah we lost everything and um so here we were starting (laughs) over again again after the bankruptcy here came the flood Uh, so and by now I'm 10 years older, you know, so it's like, Lord, I don't know how many more things I can do. <laughs> and and so I wrote the book When the Rains Fall because there, it was a great miracle story that happened, Dave. Yeah. And it's worth the reading. it's on Amazon too, When yeah. the Rains Fall. Yeah. But it's just the, and there was a guy named James Bond at Lowe's in, in Nashville. And I, t- and I met him. Of course, you know, all the puns in the world. Oh, sure. My, my, my construction, you know, supplier was going to be James Bond. And, <laughs> but at first, he tried to talk Jane and I out of the idea that we had, because I, I, uh, I had sold the house, the flood house. I had some contrib- Yeah, I don't, I don't know, unless you read the book, you won't know this, but they picked us for, uh, what do they call that thing where they rebuild your house? Was that the Extreme Home Makeover? Yeah. That, well, they they came to our house and in interviews and shot and shot an interview at the house and and they were going to do our house. Yeah. Um, and uh, this was in the middle of the summer, about two months after the flood. And you know, and they, we were walking them through the house and reenacting it and all that stuff. And they were they took it back to their producers in L.A. and they went nuts over it. And they said, "Yeah, we're going to do this," because people were, had rec- we had hit the paper, you know. That we were fair and fair, life husband and wife in Nashville. Paper around the thing and interviewed me and blah 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 blah, and and you know it was the oddest thing. But I didn't want to live there. I didn't want to live in that house again. Right. I got the creeps every time I went on the property. And I had to swim out of there. My wife almost didn't make it. Wow. We waited too long to get out of it. Wow. It's, it's amazing that we came through that experience honestly, Dave. Yeah. And, uh, we had to swim out. And God sent, a, a, you know, a guardian angel to the door to help us or we wouldn't have. And so but when I was when I first time I met with James Bond, I had this idea because I'd piled up money and I got contributions. Amy Grant and some people did a concert, concert and gave 10 grand. Uh, Pat Terry group came and, and got, came out together and sang the thing with Susan Ashton saying. all it was a great night. And people, they, they gave me money the city of nashville had a, a fund that came from the concerts garth brooks and faith hill and all those people did so you know there was money yeah and i had and i sold the, the flood house as is after we cleaned it up and i had about 100 grand piled up and i thought i can build something and, and let's build something with this and see how far and see if we are you know having to eat off plywood <laughs> so and and that's what we did and it took us about a year to to uh to make all that happen Mm -hmm. you know but by it we moved in 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 spring of 12 so that was two years after the flood but it was about only about six or eight months after we had finally found property you know and came back and i lived with my daughter for a while right waiting for the and i had insurance so i used my insurance my flood insurance to pay off the mortgage okay that's how and when i did that it was free and clear and i thought you know i said all this money piled up and i thought Jane, if we don't do something with this right, we'll spend this money. We'll just put it away, yeah. putter it away, and it'll be gone in a year. Yeah. So, why don't we do this? Why don't we leave it in the bank, sit on it, don't spend it, live with our kids, whatever we have to do, live with friends for a year, and then go back to Nashville when we finally get everything paid off, and get it in, and put up a house with cash. Okay. So we that's what we did. And, and we came out here. Now we're, we're lo- absolutely in love. It's the best investment we ever made in our lives. But, but the story was in, in was engaging because of the way the Lord had to teach me. Because I'm pretty dumb when it <laughs> comes to that stuff. I, you know, a lot of stuff I don't get. And I really want a handheld device to take care of my problems. Mm, yeah, as, as quickly as possible. Yeah. And I found out really early on that that wasn't going to happen. And the Lord was saying to me, "But if you'll be patient." bob and wait on me i'll do something wonderful so it happened and and you know and he had to take me through that in order for it to happen but so i mean here was james bond at Lowe saying y'all don't do this don't do this don't do this he didn't even know me he was yeah. just trying to be a good daddy figure and say you're going to hate each other by the time you build this house you'll be divorced uh-huh. And I said, no, no, we won't. And we drew out for him on a legal pad what we were going to build. And I had the guy that was going to build it and all that. And, you know, a year later, right before we were moving in, James Bond told me, he said, you know, you probably should write a book about this, Bob. I I told you not to do this, and I was wrong. But he said, all the stuff you've told me has happened. He was a Christian guy. Yeah. And he said, the stuff I've seen happen to you guys is kind of miraculous. And so maybe it would encourage people. Maybe you should do that. So that's when I wrote When the Rains Fall. And and it was the first time I'd written anything like that. But I enjoyed the process, yeah. you know. Yeah. And I've written a lot since. But um, I think that the flood coming along with just more polish – you never do know what it is that the Lord's going to allow and for what reasons. Right. But you've got to fall back on him. You can't say why me, Lord? You have to say what now, Lord? That's subtle difference. Yeah. That's the phrase to to fall. The other one is not the right. and, And most people go, In every catastrophe, why does, you know, if there really is a God, why does he allow this? Right. And that's not the question to ask. And it's not, certainly not the reason that disaster happens, but we live in a fallen planet. Yeah. That's why disasters happen because we (laughs) live among fallen people. Yeah. And fallen elements. The the elements themselves grow waiting for redemption. So it's not going to change until the age changes. Yeah. And, you know, until the, the Lord returns. But I think that that in the middle of the process it's really important and i i I never did i I felt i had a little pity party one morning uh, a couple days after the flood jane had gone to phoenix to be with our daughters and i went back to the house and i had a real 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 sad time (laughs) just looking at my Totally trashed grand piano that I had worked with Amy Grant, and Michael W. Smith, and Reggie Ham and Eddie carmen All these people yeah. on that piano, and I'm having this pity party, and it, and then all of a sudden, this clarion voice <laughs> almost yeah just almost screamed in the room at me. But it was just this is stuff, Bob. This is stuff. You're alive, Jane's alive. And you, I'll give you, if you like stuff, I'll give you more stuff. But I gave you all this. You didn't do anything to earn any of this. I gave you this stuff. Uh, and I learned something then that was not the t- I, I won a battle in the, the war. And I didn't have complete total victory, but I didn't go to that depth of woe is me, right. poor pitiful Bob, after that. Uh, because I think I, fi- I, I, I filtered and found out that, um, as a human animal, we we are totally capable of coming back from all manner of crazy, cruddy, you name it. And we will, we do get up. Yeah. And all this, you know, this too shall pass, you know, um, because it does. Yeah. So it's important to remind yourself when things are going sideways, when things are wobbling, when things are really dark and bleak, that there's going to be sunshine. Yeah. There is. Yeah. And I've had a couple of, pretty catastrophic events. It was a bankruptcy and a flood, a life-changing flood. But you know, the Lord started giving me good ideas about what to do immediately. You know, it's like this could happen, this could happen, and you could do this, and you could do that. And if you'll wait on me, I can do this. And he he came through with so many things yeah. during that process, you know, like from unexpected places of somebody that would that would give me you know, a piano, or, or somebody that would do, you know, give me what I needed to build the back deck, or whatever. It yeah. just happened serendipitously, and and you never knew. Yeah, yeah, what he was going to use. So I I learned good stuff out of that process, and now, uh, you know, we're in a totally better place even than we were before, right before the flood. Isn't it interesting yeah.
1: that we serve the the master creator who can. Build a world, an earth, a milky way out of nothing just by speaking a word. And yet when we're down and struggling and frustrated, what are you going to do, God? You How, how are you going to do this? Yeah. And I, I sometimes wonder if God's just not sitting back saying, look around you. See what I've done?
0: Can you imagine what I'm going to do for you? Yeah. If you'll just let me. Yeah, we put, we, we're the ones that put the constraints on. Yeah. And we, and we do them out of uh, fear. It's fear-based, yeah, and fear—fear fear is a big deal in, in in our lives. I talk about it, and I will be, because it's the big bludgeon that the enemy uses yeah. on us. Is is the stuff that is reactive instead of active, and we have to learn to to be proactive in our life. Because if we're not, all we're ever going to do through life is react to situations.
1: You call it the survival brain and the front brain, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. And you know, it'll, it, you'll just get absolutely kicked all over the block yeah. until you learn that, and and realize that when you're when you're reacting, you're doing stuff out of the back of your brain, and that's not the place where we, you know, it's the front of the brain where all the hope comes from, and where all the answers come from, and where God connects with you. Yeah. And there's a way to. To go from the from that kind of thought processing, decision making, there's a way to to remedy that, and it's it's gratefulness and and worship and praise yeah. and thankfulness, thankful for stuff in your life. You know, sometimes sometimes I I get weary because I'm out here, I'm having to maintain this property I bought.
1: You yeah. know,
0: physically yeah. yeah. out there doing. <laughs> and, you know, I don't love weed, weed whacking, but I get out there do stuff. But then I have to. My wife has to stop me and say, "Bobby, hey, think about this again. Just think with me where we live. Yeah, and we don't have any debt on it. We don't have a mortgage. How could you ever dream that you would be in that place? You know, at this point in your life." And she's right. So, gratefulness is the way. Enter His courts with thanksgiving. Yeah. Do that. You'll travel from the from those. Uh, the back of your brain to the front of your front lobe of your brain and just start creating new, you're creating new trees that, you know, you can literally change your life by doing that, literally change your brain. Yeah. That's what they're finding out now is that you, the the brain, when it gets acted that way in the front lobe, it starts growing new trees. It starts branching out into new areas. And so you're going to find stuff you never knew. Yeah. And that's the way God works. And that, and, and so it's not about, you know he give given us a spirit of fear he's given us a spirit of a sound mind yeah you know and we got to go we got to grasp that stuff in life dave or, or we sink along with the rest of the fools yeah. that, that <laughs> yeah. are, you know that are just talking smack yeah. around us and and you start buying into lies yeah. i tell you man this this virus time has been one of the strangest things i've ever experienced ever in my life for any of us i'm sure yeah, yeah. And, and and what is what it's about and trying to learn the lessons but god's got a big megaphone right now and <laughs> he's trying to shout some instruction but i'm actually seeing more people come back to to what they once believed during this time and that might be what it's about i don't know it feels like the the the, the end times it feels like what Jesus predicted and Paul talked about, mm-hmm. you know, about what it was going to life was going to be like. Because we've got so many fools that are around us now, so many people that are buying into lies. Yeah, and yeah. that's scary. Except, God's still in control.
1: Amen. Amen.
0: He's still in control. We're not. Yeah. He's got a plan, and he, you know, and the end game belongs to him. Yeah. So we got. We just got to remember and do the best we can possibly do, which means we got to give him all the credit and, and ask him to please give us the wisdom to get through this, this craziness, but quit listening to the, the voice of fear. Yes. If people can learn how to do that start eating from the tree of life, yeah. they'll start eating that fruit. It'll, it'll transform their life. Yeah. You know? And, and when you're reading from the knowledge of good and evil tree of knowledge, Dude, it, that that changes from minute to minute. Yeah, yeah, and you don't know who to believe. Right? Just believe in God. You yep. believe? In, it, Jesus said, "You believe in God? Believe also in me, because I got the answers. I'm the one. I'll give you the wisdom. I'll get you through this." So I'm I'm a big proponent of even when I'm clueless, He's not. Yeah. Even when I'm unable, He is able. Amen. <laughs> that's good news. Yeah. That's good. Good. That's good. Good news is what that is. Oh.
1: Wow, wasn't that incredible? It's so encouraging for me to hear how God is bringing everyday people through tough and hard times. And the reminder should change my thinking from why me God to what now God. Wow, that's powerful stuff. During our conversation, Bob referred to his books Where the Rain Falls and I Will Be. They are both available on Amazon and I'll put links to both of those books in the podcast notes. Plus all of Farrell and Farrell's music, lyrics and pictures from their tours are available on his website farrellandfarrell.com and you should definitely go check that out. Unfortunately, due to time constraints, I had to edit my conversation with Bob, but I've included it in the aftercast where Bob talks about his writing method. And if you're an aspiring songwriter, I definitely recommend you check that out. You can catch the Aftercast over at patreon.com slash ccmexchange and I'll put that link in the podcast notes as well. I want to thank you for listening to the Christian Music Archive podcast. If this conversation was helpful to you or if you have comments about the show, I'd love to hear from you. You can communicate with me by going to my website, christianmusicarchive.com slash podcast. Well, that wraps up the premiere episode of the Christian Music Archive podcast. Be sure to come back next week as I've got another great conversation ready for you. And so until then, remember, God loves you. In fact, he's crazy about you.